Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. All righty. I can tell the Buckeyes won yesterday. Uh, they're what, three and one? And uh, Kentucky is four and oh. So just mentioning that in passing. Um, but anyway... Well, that's our new ad that Chris Jones has, has put together that we're sharing on Facebook and, and so forth, and would appreciate if you're on Facebook sharing that as that ad as well as we try to reach the unchurched in our community. This is the best time to do it, even though I know we have our challenges. We've got a lot of people still watching online. Hello, everybody, uh, because of the Delta variant and so forth. But... Um, if you know somebody who doesn't have a church home, we're not interested in people who already have a church where they teach the Bible, but if they don't, uh, you can share that ad. It's already had a couple, maybe 1,000, 1,200 hits or something like that, and so we want to get that out there. Now, this is our, we're continuing our Back to Basics series, and this is also something we like to do every couple of years to make sure that our church knows what the core doctrines are of a Christian faith. And today we're going to talk about Christ. Next week, Dad will be talking about the Holy Spirit. So just so you have kind of a reference point of where we are. Now, <clears throat> a couple things. First of all, um, it is a blessing when we have a full band up here. But I know I'm biased because I'm related to both of them, but I think that Megan and Jill just did a fine job this morning uh, on their own and appreciate them doing that. We're still looking for, for more volunteers for everything we do, greeting, security, kids ministry. Um, you do have to have a background check to do that, but we're asking you if you're not doing it to pray about it. And we've had some people step up. Um, one of them is, again, related to me. My sister-in-law, Kayla, has taken over the children's ministry uh, for mom so that mom can just focus on women's ministry, which is her passion anyway. And so if you're interested in helping out the kids, go see Kayla, and she can take it from there. We also, if you are a volunteer, we have our volunteer appreciation dinner coming up here in a couple of weeks, and hope you RSVP for that. Now, um, here's the thing. There are two ways to make Christians angry, um, and I'm good at both of them. The first one is to disagree with them on their view of the end times, what's going to happen, how Jesus returns, all that other kind of stuff. That's one. The second way is to monkey with their picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. I'm going to monkey around this morning, and so you're just going to have to, going to, have to deal with it. I, see, there are a couple things. You know, I, as I said a few weeks ago, there is a real problem in the church today, and one of them is that there is a shortage of ministers. Not enough people want to go into ministry, and so there's that problem. The other problem is that then when you get into ministry, it's actually a rough go. It's not just standing in front of people and talking. You know, you get phone calls in the middle of the night, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. And 
it's unfortunate, but 70% of pastors today in North America are considering quitting. And one of the reasons is they get hurt. You know, people turn on them, gossip about them, all the other kind of stuff. And it's just like, this isn't, just isn't worth it. But what keeps me going, there are a couple things that keep me going. Um, one is that I love most of you. And um, kidding, kidding, maybe. Um, but, but the second thing is this. I love to learn and I've been doing this, you know, for 20-odd years now, and every year I learn something about Jesus that I didn't know before. That, to me, is really, really cool, and it keeps me going. Megan loves it, too. It's one of the reasons we get along so well is we're both Bible geeks. You know, it's a real, real um, interesting conversation. If you're not a Christian, our dinner conversation will bore you to death. Um, but... Like, for example, you know, I'm doing a Ph.D. in New Testament, and, and I was, one of the things I've been learning about over the last few years is a relatively new discipline called intertextuality. Now, you don't need to know all about that, but here's the, the cool thing about it. What it does is it, it examines scriptures very closely in Greek and Hebrew and compares how scripture interprets scripture sometimes in such subtle ways that you can miss it really easily. So, for example, if you want to open your Bibles, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. I've had a couple people get on me about using my own translation, saying they can't keep up. Just would you pick a translation? I'm not saying who those people are. One of them's names rhymes with Josh Hill. But anyway, it's, um, <laughs> it's I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and typically from here out, that's where I'll be drawing. I may have to tweak it here and there. But. And we're, I'm looking at Mark 6. Uh, Mark 6, 47 through 50. Now, if you've been a believer for a while, if you've read your Bible, you know this story well. But you may not know the whole shmeel. Mark 6, 47 through 50. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake. And Jesus was alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. He intended to go past them. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. Now notice this phrase. I am here. That's a loaded phrase in first century Judaism. Because when Moses asked the burning bush who he was talking to, what's God's name? God said what? I am. And that was considered a name for God. Now, here's the other interesting thing. And the Greek in Mark and the Greek version of the Old Testament in Job 9.8 mirrors each other almost perfectly. And Job 9.8 says this. Job is speaking about God. It says, God alone has spread out the heavens and God alone marches on the waves of the sea. You see, when Jesus, and we, we pointed this out, I don't know if you remember, you probably don't, when we went through the Gospel of John, 
I'm assuming most of you don't remember. I get this all the time. You know, you guys are very nice, and, you know, you guys will be like, oh, great sermon. You know, I'll, you know, I'll see one of you out at Kroger or something on a Wednesday. You're like, hey, that was a great sermon. And every once in a while, I get a streak I get from my father, this smart aleck streak, who, who by the way, turned 184 yesterday. Um, doesn't look a day over 84. Um, but I get this streak, and I'll say, oh, really? What did what, uh, you like about it? What was it about? Jesus. Good guess. <laughs> um, that's okay. But when we went through the Gospel of John, one of the things I tried to point out was that Jesus never does a miracle just to go, hey, look what I can do. Right? That's not what he's doing. He's not showing off. He's not doing any of that. In fact, John is very deliberate. When Jesus does a miracle and he records it in the Gospel of John, he, what does he say? It's a sign. A sign. A sign points to something else. Whenever Jesus is doing a miracle, it's not just the miracle itself. He's saying something about himself and the kind of Messiah he is. And here, what he is trying to tell his disciples by walking on the water is, I am. I am God. That's what he's doing. And you notice that little phrase in there, it's kind of strange. It's, it's, it, he, he intended to go past them. You go, why? He was just going to walk right past them. Well, there's one variation of the Greek Old Testament of Job 9.8 where Job says, but he's walked past me. Do you see? See, I love learning stuff like that. Scripture is so Deep. There's so much there if you'll slow down and take your time and study. Now, being a New Testament geek, having to study all this stuff, one of the things you learn, you have to learn, is the history of New Testament research. Now, what you learn is that way back in the 19th century, back when Dad was 40, um, way back then... The scholars in Germany and England kicked this thing off called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. Now, it was largely liberal. Don't go read any of those books. They're not worth your time. But what they were trying to do was they did not believe that you could trust the New Testament because the New Testament authors had an agenda, and so they tried to get behind it to discover the real Jesus. Now, fortunately, that quest eventually failed. A guy named Albert Schweitzer came along, and he wrote his own quest for the historical Jesus. But one of the things he said was, in the, near the beginning, he said, isn't it funny that we, for 100 years we've been on this quest for the historical Jesus, and yet every time a writer writes about Jesus, the Jesus they write about seems to look a lot like the person writing about him. Now, to be fair, we all do this to an extent. We all have a vision of Jesus that we were either raised with, we got from the flannel graph when we were kids, or, or, or whatever. And that's the vision we have of Jesus, and we don't like to shake it. But most of our visions of who Jesus was are false. They're just false. And fortunately, 
about, what's it been, about 30, 40 years ago, conservative Bible-believing scholars like N.T. Wright and Craig Keener and those guys, Ben Witherington, they started their own quest for the historical Jesus. But they trusted Scripture. What they said is, let's better understand Jesus as he's in Scripture. Let's better understand the culture, the history, the archaeology, and so that we can better understand who Jesus is and we can kind of rip some of those prejudices we have that color our, our vision of Jesus and distort it. And so that's what they started to do. And there's, there's books out there I could recommend to you for, for those of you who like to read. There's a little book by N.T. Wright called Who Was Jesus? That's a very good little book, about 120 pages, Who Was Jesus? There's another great book by a guy named Kenneth Bailey called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Now that book will rock your world. It's a scholarly work. Bailey has a Ph.D. in the New Testament, but he spent something like 20 years as a missionary in the Middle East. And so he learned all the different customs and so forth, and, and it's very, very interesting. And here's one of the things that they put forward. I get it. Um, they put forward about Jesus that many of us assume but don't think about. Ready for this one? Jesus was Jewish. You're saying, duh. You ever thought about what that means, though? Well, here's one. And I've done this before, and somebody gets mad at me every time. Maybe because you have this portrait in your home. How many of you have seen the portrait of Jesus with the blue eyes and the nice flowing feathered hair? Like he's the lead singer of the Marshall Tucker Band. And he's got like rosy cheeks. And he looks like he weighs about 80 pounds soaking wet. None of that is right. There was not a Jewish man anywhere in Israel who had light skin, blue eyes, or feathered hair. They usually had short hair. In fact, it was considered, it was considered disreputable to have long hair. They cut their hair very short, and Jewish men's hair was very kinky, curly. They were olive-skinned, had dark eyes. As Ralph Clay likes to say, he looked like me. <laughs> and that's not far off. But there's more. Think about what we know about Jesus. First of all, I know that many of your translations and so forth and what you've been raised with says he was a carpenter, right? Right? <clears throat> Wrong. Thanks for playing. The Greek word actually means just works with his hands. So he worked construction. Now, he worked construction. And he would have had to have walked at least five miles before daylight to get to his job. And he subsisted on a diet of almonds, figs, and fish and he swung a very heavy hammer and carried very heavy stone and wood around. What do you think his physique would have looked like? See, there's a reason why, if you ever notice this, when Jesus gives up his spirit and dies on the cross, it says the Roman soldiers were, were surprised that he died so quickly. 
Why were they surprised he died so quickly? Because he looked so healthy. He looked too strong to die in six hours. Some people survived on crosses for days. Do you see that the picture you have of Jesus is not historically accurate? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now, here's what we know about Nazareth. It was a hick town, a backwards hick town. That's the reason why you remember when the disciples said, we've met the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, they say, can anything good come out of there? That's the reputation it had. It was a small hick town. It was the kind of town, if you took Nazareth and you put it in southern Ohio today, it would be the kind of place where they believe wrestling is real, donned head-to-toe in NASCAR apparel, and they thought the first day of deer season was more important than their wedding anniversary. It's that kind of town. That's the kind of town Jesus grew up in. Think, uh, wait. Jesus grows up in that kind of town. And when you know this, you can see why. Sometimes Jesus grew up in a rough area, and he's, he can get pretty rough with people. He's not above pointing his fingers at the Jewish leaders and saying, you're hypocrites. You're vipers. You're whitewashed walls. And if you could read that in the Greek, not that I recommend it, but I can tell you how tough it is. She's been studying it for two couple years now. When he's saying that stuff and he's pointing his finger in your English translation, there should be an exclamation point because he's raising his voice. It's different. Different than you may have thought it was. He looked rougher. He spoke rougher. He was a tougher dude than you give him credit for being. That's who he was. Not only that, in all likelihood, what we know now about Israel at that time and so forth, we now have determined that probably around 12 or 13, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, died. You know, he's nowhere around when he's an adult. We have absolutely no biblical information about Jesus' life between the ages of 12 and around at least 30. People like to say 30 is when he started his ministry. It may have been, but Luke's not very helpful. Luke said he wasn't 40. Well, thanks, Luke, you know. But we think he was 30 because that's when Jewish men were allowed to speak in public. But we don't know. See, the way the education system worked in Israel was like this. When you were five years old, if you grew up in a town that had a synagogue or Jewish church, right, then you'd send your little five-year-old boys off to the synagogue, and the rabbi would train them. And from about the age of five to about ten, they would memorize Genesis. They would memorize Exodus. They would memorize Leviticus. They would memorize Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Nazareth had a synagogue. At age 10, the rabbi selected the best of the best, and they would go on and learn, memorize the rest of the Old Testament. In those next three years. And then at age 13, the brightest of the brightest the rabbi would send off a little letter to the temple in Jerusalem and say, 
these kids should be priests, be trained as priests. Now, does anybody, now, if you were not selected, then you went off and worked with your daddy. Does anybody think Jesus was not the brightest of the brightest among those kids? There's a reason why Luke includes that little episode when he's 12 years old and he's in the temple. And the priests are like, this kid, this kid asked the best questions we've ever heard. You see? Which means at about 12 or 13, that's when Jesus had to pick up the hammer and he had to become the head of the family to provide for his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And one of the things we know is this, because he probably worked a lot in a place called Sepphoris. Now, in this area where Jesus grew up, when he was a teenager, there was an uprising against the Roman Empire. And the Romans, to send a signal, lined the road between Nazareth and Sepphoris with people on crosses, which means Jesus had to walk to work looking at cross after cross after cross after cross, knowing where he was headed. I want you to think about the life of Jesus. Think, you want, think carefully about the chronology, how it happened. Not just born of a virgin and taken off to Egypt when he was a toddler, he was a toddler by that time, probably two, three years old. Come back from Egypt. He's baptized. He goes into the wilderness to be tested. He comes back. He starts throwing out demons, healing people, resurrecting people, teaching people, and gathers around him a group of 12. Does that sound familiar? Let me start this way. Jesus begins his career by doing what? Being baptized. Do you know what the rabbis referred to Israel crossing the Red Sea as? Their baptism. And then where did Israel go? Out in the wilderness to be tested. Then they were sent into the promised land to do what? Throw out the bad guys. Then form into 12 tribes that were to reach out to the world to let them know who the one true God was. Do you see what Jesus is doing? You see, sometimes I meet Christians who seem to think that God had plan A with Adam and Eve, then there was plan B with Israel, then there's plan C with Jesus. No, there's only one plan. Israel just screwed it up. Jesus did it right. Do you see? The plan was always perfect. It had to be executed perfectly. And only Jesus could do that. Why, and people have asked me this, but why is he so quiet? And TV shows on the History Channel and A&E and all that kind of stuff, and Amazon Prime now and Netflix, every Easter and Christmas, they make a big to-do about this. You'll have some far-out scholar, some, some loony out there go, well, actually, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. They, his uh, disciples did that for him. That's not true. 
Now, it is true. Jesus did not go around publicly going, I'm the Messiah. There's a very good reason for that. And he was offered that chance. Do you remember? What was one of Satan's tests in the desert? I'll take you up to the top of the temple so you'll be in front of all the Jewish leadership. Toss yourself off. Do a swan dive. Everybody will scream. And then angels will just stop you. And you have a soft landing and go, here I am. And Jesus said, no thanks. That probably would have made an impression, wouldn't it? Would you listen to that kind of guy? I would. Now, it's in Scripture if you read carefully. In John 6, 15. You need to understand that at this time, as Dr. Carol Osborne used to teach me in Greek class, the all of Israel had what he called Messiah fever. They were looking left and right for the Messiah. And what kind of Messiah did they want? They wanted another David. They wanted a warrior. They wanted somebody who was going to go kick the Romans' butts and give them their freedom back and be a mighty warrior. And it was everywhere. And there were all kinds of people claiming to be the Messiah. But in John 6, 15, it reads, When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Jesus had no desire to be king of Israel. He was already king of all creation. His desire was not to serve one nation, but to save all of them. And so he pushed it away. Now, one other thing. Let's talk about the mission of Jesus. It's often said, theologians often say, Jesus was our prophet, priest, and king. That that's how the New Testament presents him. And that's true. But he's also our savior. He offers atonement. Atonement just is a fancy theological word that means at one -ment. You see that? It means our sin has separated us from God, and because of Jesus' work, his life, and his death on the cross, if we place our faith in him, we are at one again with God. And this was part of Jesus' mission. But this is nothing new either. If you've read the law, the Old Testament law, if you were an Israelite and you sinned, what did you have to do? You had to go to the tabernacle or the temple and offer a sacrifice and ask God for forgiveness. And if you did that, you were forgiven. But you had to do it over and over again. So what is Christ doing on the cross? Again, the plan is perfect. It's the sacrifice for our sins. It's as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And if you underline one verse in your Bible, this should be it. Because this is the gospel condensed. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It's that simple. Jesus lived a perfect life. And I'll get to that in a second. Not just to be the perfect sacrifice, but that was part of it. 
He goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. If you're a Christian, you will still sin. You may come forth, and if you're not a Christian, I hope you do, and confess, I hope you do, repent, I hope you do, we'll take you back here, we'll baptize you, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. However, those sins float. You will take them with you. I used to wonder, these are the kind of debates you have in seminary with guys you're going to seminary with. Was it, is it possible to get through a day without sinning? I mean, if you slept really late. I don't think so. And unfortunately, because my wife's puppies insist on sleeping with us, I now sin in my sleep as well. Goodness sakes. Oh, come on. I mean, 3 a.m., that breath. Oh, gosh. And I'm telling you something. Those things, that those market, those dentist sticks, they're liars. I'm just going to start giving them nothing to drink but scope. Um, but anyway, you will sin. And when you sin, you must repent. And repent is not just, I'm sorry, screwed up. Nope, 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 nope. Repent is, I betrayed you, Lord Jesus. Please forgive me. Please help me to not do it again. Repentance means a turning. A turning away from the sin. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, not just, well, I should say this, not just his death. He did not just die on the cross. Folks, if you read carefully, he was tortured. Tortured. They spat on him. They punched him. And then they tied him to a boulder, and they took a cat of nine tails. It's a whip leather whip, and they would attach to the end of that whip little pieces, jagged pieces of bone or stone, and they would go at you. Roman historians have said typically when they were done, you could see their back was gone and you could actually see vital organs. And then they made him carry part of his own cross to his own execution site. Now, that wasn't pretty either. And I get in trouble for this too. People say, you give me, it's one woman said, give me nightmares. I'm sorry, but this is the way it was. You need to know what your king did for you. Part of the way they kept a body on the cross was there was a little wooden nub that was not sanded, was not polished, and they shoved it into your anus. Typically, they then tied the person to the cross. They didn't mass-produce nails in the first century. Those things were expensive. If they use nails, it's just because 
they wanted to be extra cruel. And once you were nailed or tied to that cross, one of the ways, because the Romans were experts in murder, and one of the things they would do is they would situate you. Here's another thing. By the way, I know many of you are wearing crosses. That's not right. It actually looked like a capital T. You hate me now, don't you? Because they left the stick, the stick would be the main rod would stay in the ground. They'd keep it there. They didn't dig new ones, and they reused them. They reused them, and they were often covered with feces, urine, blood, etc. But you would have to take the top with you, and they'd put the top on. He was not way up in the sky like in the movies. He was at eye level, and he would have been stripped naked to humiliate him. So they then nailed here, here, and here. And the way they would do it, the way they would situate you on the cross was such that you could not breathe. You had to push yourself up on your nails to breathe and run your back that has been absolutely split open with a whip against a rough piece of wood to speak. Jesus pushes himself up to look over at a convicted rebel who three hours earlier had been making fun of him and now says, please remember me when you go into your kingdom. And he pushes himself up to get a breath and say, to gasp, today you will be with me in paradise. For one person. That's your king. One tough hombre. You know, one of the best ways to learn about Jesus is to read the little kid's book, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Lewis had pretty good theology. There are a couple of wonky things in there, but it's pretty good. But one of the things you need to understand about your king is this, and I've said this before, but you need to understand this. Your king was tortured for you, died for you, your king is coming back for you. But your king is king. And he cannot be manipulated. I love the little throwaway line. At least all the movies and TV shows that have tried to adapt the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe have screwed this up. They've treated it like a throwaway line when, in fact, it was Lewis's, one of Lewis's big points. If you've never read the book, there is the emperor beyond the sea... He's the father, and there is Aslan, the king lion. He is Jesus. Makes that very clear in the book because, spoiler alert, he dies for a sinner, and then he's resurrected. And the kids who have witnessed all this, at one point, Aslan has just disappeared. Well, where is he? Go get him. And one of the animals who knows Aslan well says, no, 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 no. Aslan is not a tame lion. Now, by tame, Lewis did not mean that Jesus would bark at her or roar at her or whatever. What he meant was 
You can't control him. You can't control him. The Bible says the Holy Spirit goes where it goes. Jesus will do as he pleases. And too many Christians get upset when they don't get their way from Jesus. And I understand. I get it. When life is tough, when you lose a job, when a doctor looks at you and says it's stage four, when, I, when all these things in life go wrong, when someone breaks your heart, when a kid screws up, which they will, too many Christians go, why, Lord? He has his reasons. One theologian said it this way, said, if I had the power of Jesus Christ, I would change many things, but the truth is if I also had the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I would probably not change anything. You must trust that your king who died for you is just and right. Always. And you must go to him every day and pray and repent. Um, about, I guess it was maybe 10 years ago, I don't know. About 10 years ago when I was working for a Christian legal organization. No, that's not a contradiction in term. I know Christian lawyers sound weird, but they're out there. They're few and far between, but they're out there. And we had a big training session where we trained volunteer attorneys and pastors and so forth. Um, and I took mom and dad with me. And it was in um, Hawaii because I'm willing to suffer for the Lord. And one of the people I got to meet there, one of the pastors who was there was somebody I'd long admired. And I told him that. It was Dr. David Jeremiah. I love Dr. David Jeremiah. I have some differences with his theology on end time stuff, but I'm not going to make you mad on that route today. I'll do that later. But when I became a Christian in 1997, typically... When I got out of work and would head to class when I was finishing up my degree, David Jeremiah would just be coming on. And the ride into school lasted just about as long as that radio program, so I listened to it every day. And what I love about David Jeremiah is not only that he's biblical, he tells the best stories. And I never will forget this story. It has been 24 years, and I remember this story so well. A king in a far distant land is touring a prison in his nation. And, and every time he passed a cell, the prisoner would, would yell, Your Highness, Your Highness, I have been, I've been unjustly put in prison. I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And the king would pass by and pass by. We got to one cell and one guy was there. He was on his knees and his head was down, saying nothing. And the king said, aren't you going to tell me that you're innocent too? And the prisoner said, no, your highness, I am guilty. And I deserve this and much worse. And the king said, jailer, let this man go free. We can't have a uh, guilty man corrupting all these innocent ones. When we go to our king, we should worship, we should confess our guilt. 
and know that he will forgive us if we truly repent. You need to understand, he's not a tame lion. But even when you go through difficulties and you're upset with Jesus, do you know he prays for you? Have you read your Bibles? Hebrews 7.25 reads, Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus Christ prays for you when you're in those difficulties. He's there. I don't know if you've heard me tell this story before. I'll end this way. You need to remember this because we're in a tough time now. And it may get worse before it gets better. Dr. Fred Craddock went to see a, see a woman in the hospital. She was gravely ill. And she had nearly died the night before. And she asked Dr. Craddock, were you here last night with me? And Dr. Craddock said, no, ma'am, I, I wasn't. Someone held my hand. Well, maybe it was a nurse or a doctor or an orderly. She said, no, but he had a scar right here. She said, who was that man? Dr. Craddock said, you know who he was. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Love your king. Worship your king. Serve your king. Confess to your king. Love your king. Let's pray. Father, King Jesus, we pray to you. Forgive us. We are all sinners. If we love you, we should keep your commands. May we love you more, knowing what you went through for us, to save us. But we must always remember you also reign over us. There is not an inch of creation that you do not look at and say, that is mine, and rightfully so. You created it. You redeemed it. It is yours. May we be reminded that every action, every thought, every second of our lives actually belong to you. You paid for it. You deserve it. And in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God goes with you. God will and see you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.